Welcome to The Vine with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. Today, our guest is Graham Pechenik, founder of Calix Law, a cannabis and psychedelics firm, the first patent law boutique in California to focus on the cannabis industry and among the first patent lawyers anywhere to work on psychedelics. A registered patent attorney with degrees in biochemistry and cognitive neuroscience, Graham has represented Fortune 500 companies on their most critical patent matters, and he works closely with ventures in the cannabis and psychedelic space to design and implement their patent and intellectual property strategies and generate value and growth through their intellectual property. Graham, we're so happy to have you on our show today. I'm so excited to be here. I've loved your podcast, and I'm really, really happy to be on. Oh, thank you so much. And so, you know, we always like to start out with asking our guests how they came to the plant medicine space. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your story around psychedelics and cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. And cannabis and psychedelics have been really important um, in my life. So, you know, I love talking about the background of how I came to them. Cannabis, I was introduced to back in high school and it was kind of love at first sight. I mean, it really helped me to enjoy the things that I already liked and appreciate them much more, like music and nature. And my sort of time until I met it, cannabis, I had a lot of social anxiety that like kept me from um, like interacting and making friends. And when I smoked cannabis, I was much more outgoing. I had a like much easier time making friends and building a community. And so it became really important to me. And I was fortunate that I um, grew up in Oakland, where cannabis was very accessible. It was like widely accepted. Um, it was actually right at the time when Prop 215 um, was coming out. So the Compassionate Use Act, actually one of the very first things I did when I had my driver's license was volunteer to collect signatures to get it on the ballot. Um, cool. And yeah, so cannabis was something that I you know, became a part of my life as soon as I found out about it. And then um, psychedelics, so psychedelics, despite having probably more experience with cannabis, psychedelics is more important to my life, I think. So I um, first had my psychedelic, my first psychedelic experience um, my sophomore year of college. Um, and it was one of the most profound experiences that I had had. Um, and the like social anxiety that I mentioned that cannabis helped me to overcome. Like for the first time when I had this um, experience on mushrooms, I was able to kind of observe those thought patterns that like cause that social anxiety for the first time. And like with from this vantage point that I had never had before where cannabis helped me to kind of overcome it by smoking it. I now could like see these thought patterns and like no longer kind of identify with them. Um, and I had this like just realization that like my personality wasn't this social anxiety that I always thought like I was like an awkward shy person, but it was like this other thing like this kind of like a big heavy like winter coat that I could just like take off and I was like well why am I wearing this heavy coat like let me just like get rid of it and like it was such a meaningful thing that I like reflected on so much afterwards because it just kind of like was such a big change in my personality that I became like frankly like fairly obsessed with psychedelics I changed my major to study cognitive neuroscience because I was really fascinated by like the effect that it had on my consciousness and my thinking. Um, and I spent, spent like all my free time like reading Arrowhead experience reports. Um, so it was like something that I wanted to like make my career path. Um, and I didn't end up going down the road with science. Actually one of the labs I was working in at the time 
um, and this is so the like late 90s and people were doing research on psychedelics, but I actually kind of got the courage up to talk to the professor who was running this lab about psychedelics. And her response was like, oh, well, you know, this is something that's like not really, um, you know, we should be researching. And she was, I asked her like if something she would do and she said, oh, maybe when I'm retired because I heard that like it could affect my like brain in a way that I like wouldn't be able to continue in this like intellectual work. And I was like, this, like, how is this kind of possible? But it really dissuaded me. And it made me realize there was like this big kind of dichotomy between the perception around psychedelics and what like psychedelics actually could do. Because obviously I had my experience. I had the experience that I was like reading about on Arrowhead. At the same time, I read this book by somebody, Carrie Mullis, who had won the Nobel Prize and talked about how important psychedelics were in the work that he did. It was about DNA replication. The work that he did to come up with that was all influenced by his experiences with LSD. So I knew like this wasn't something that was just, you know, limited to kind of my experience, but this was wider. So I actually decided at that time um, that law school was what I wanted to do because I thought that like I could play a role in um, the sort of legalization efforts around psychedelics. And now, of course, so kind of accelerate the story to where I am now, you know, the kind of realities after, you know, getting into law school, I had really no idea what somebody would do if you wanted to be like a advocate for cognitive liberty. It was just kind of like an idea I had. Um, so the realities of like law school loans and finding a job kind of kicked in and I spent a decade of my life doing patent law because that was the background I had and kind of, you know, still was very involved in like using these medicines and, and being parts of the communities. And, you know, my favorite thing to do that I'm really sad about now in the pandemic is like going to festivals and sharing these with friends. And, um, but after about a decade working at big law firms, I decided, you know, that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had now paid off my loans and I had, um, the, you know, the, the very fortunate luxury to kind of decide where I wanted to go with my career. Um, and at that time I had a lot of friends because, now I was back in San Francisco, um, who were starting cannabis businesses, and they found that um, big law firms were either hesitant to work with cannabis clients or wouldn't work with them at all because of issues around tax and um, dealing with money and you know plant-touching businesses. Um, or maybe a law firm was, but there weren't that many cannabis experts, um, so it was hard to find somebody, especially like in the kind of patent space. Um, and then uh lawyers at big law firms were you know charging 800 dollars an hour and a lot of the cannabis businesses were like how can i find somebody to you know to do work for me so i i started doing a little bit of work on my own and then went to a cannabis conference in 2016 where i just had such like a kind of overwhelming response from people that this was something that was interesting to them that they would love to have somebody who knew about science and knew about patents and filing for patents so i decided that i would you know focus on the the cannabis industry in particular and then, yeah, with uh, my background particularly, so when I worked at big law firms, I did a lot of work for the pharmaceutical industry. So that translated fairly well into cannabis and then very well into psychedelics, um, especially because a lot of the kind of patents in the psychedelic space are very similar to what one would see uh, in the more pharmaceutical space. So kind of, kind of a long story and it's kind of a long path, but I'm like, I'm feel so lucky that I'm like able to now work with these, um, you know, these medicines that kind of capture my interests in the beginning in college that like I never would have guessed if I had set out that I would be a patent lawyer with my own law firm working with companies. Because one of the things that's my favorite thing about these two spaces is all the people 
who are working in them that I've met are so passionate about them. They have such amazing stories um, that it's like just it's such a like dynamic and, and fun place to be. Um, so we've talked about the laws surrounding cannabis on the vine and would really like to focus on psychedelics uh, with you today. So hope that's okay. And I, I keep asking everyone this question. I'm hoping you can help answer it. So how is one able to patent a plant? In the case of psilocybin, it's a fungus that grows naturally from the earth. Um, so, and I, when I was thinking about this question, like, are there patents on apples, on, you know, other kinds of fruits, vegetables, plants, and sort of what is the threshold um, to patent a plant? Yeah, so there's a couple of different questions there. So I guess I would start by saying that there are different types of patents. So there's three types of patents. There's a utility patent, which is what most people think about when they think about patents, because it's it covers inventions like a you know, chemical compound or a particular machine, like a ex- piece of extraction equipment. Um, then there's a design patent, which covers just sort of like the ornamental look of something. Um, and then there's also a plant patent, which is a separate own type of patent. Um, there's also something called a Plant Variety Protection Act certificate, which is a little bit like a plant patent. Um, so for natural plants like an apple tree that you mentioned or like a fungus which is not a plant but actually the plant patent protects not only plants but also certain types of algae and also macroscopic fungi so fungi actually do fall under um, a plant patent so you can get them Um, so i guess i can start with plant patents so plant patents are very specific they cover a single plant and the plants clones so anything that's been asexually reproduced from that plant so um, the requirements for getting it are that one has to have either cultivated or found in a cultivated area um, but not out like in nature or in the wild uh, a new and distinct type of plant so a plant that has some sort of distinct characteristics that separate it from all the other types of plants that came before that exist in nature i mean the whole point of a patent is that it protects uh, and, you know, a new invention that somebody has come up with that's not something that already exists. So nobody can file a patent or get a patent on just a psilocybin-containing mushroom that's already existed. But, and apples is actually a very good example because of the plant patents, the greatest number of them actually are apple <laughs> patents. And, and apple patents are actually considered very important. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a expert specifically in apple patents, but I know about them just because they have a, um, a pretty important history sort of within the kind of stream of plant patents. Um, like Honeycrisp, I don't know if you know Honeycrisp apples, yeah. but actually, yeah, so I've, I've, I hear about that a lot in the news um, because that's was a very important example of a plant patent that was filed to the University of Minnesota, I think. They had like a breeding program that came up with this Honeycrisp apple, and they were one of like the first um, sort of institutions that really tried hard to protect this particular variety of apple with patents. Um, and since then, the Honeycrisp has become like one of the best sellers. It's, I think, the state fruit of Minnesota. Um, <laughs> and they it sort of set the stage for a lot of other companies to follow and say, oh, filing patents on apples is a great idea because I can come up with an apple that's much better than 
a you know your typical bread delicious or something that's kind of has a mealy flavor so like for instance with the honey crisp the way they said that it was new and distinct the distinct varieties were like it's uh, i think particularly sweet or it has a very you know kind of a certain type of texture or skin characteristic so they you know they spend the time cross-breeding different types of um apple trees to come up with something that was new and, and worth protecting um so in the like i guess the psychedelic space it would be possible for somebody so like in oregon now we know that um you know in a couple of years after licenses will be available for producers people will be able to uh legally grow psilocybin mushrooms for um you know sale to facilitators to service centers um to provide to patients um so it's possible that people may seek to breed um, you know, different types of strains of mushrooms that may have advantageous characteristics. So maybe they will have um, you know, a, a more consistent amount of psilocybin or a higher amount of psilocybin, or they'll grow more easily, so it'll be you know, faster growing, or some characteristics that could be protectable. So it is possible that somebody can get a, you know, a plant patent to that specific, that specific mushroom, but of course it would only protect that mushroom and its clones. So people couldn't reproduce it by spores because um, that's not asexually. So they'd have to basically grow it from the same like brick of mycelium. But there would be ways that somebody could use that plant patent to protect that particular mushroom. Um, but that's just plant patents. So there also are utility patents, which can protect um, natural compounds in a sense. So one patent that's pretty well known in the psychedelic space is a patent that Compass Pathways has. And they have a patent that covers psilocybin, um, but it only covers a particular crystalline form of psilocybin. So a particular, uh, it's called a polymorph of psilocybin. Um, so they don't protect with their patent all forms of psilocybin, all forms of synthetic psilocybin, or all, all types of psilocybin-containing mushrooms, just this particular crystalline form which can be used um, to create a you know a particular type of pharmaceutical and a formulation that's um, you know better for getting FDA approval and using in a more a clinical type context. Well, there you go, Elizabeth. We were there curious, I have it. and Apple was a good good example there. Yeah. I appreciate that one. Thank you. And you know, Graham, I saw online that you're now contributing to Psilocybin Alpha as an editor at large. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what this resource is and what we could expect from your involvement with this organization or company. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be contributing to them. Um, it was a resource that, that I use as my sort of go-to resource about businesses, particularly in the psychedelic space. So who's working, um, what particular companies are doing, um, just for news and analysis, interviews, kind of research updates, investment sort of information. Um, so what I'm writing about in particular are just patents in this space. And the reason I'm writing about it is because um, despite the fact that there are some patents, um, there wasn't a lot of information that I saw out there that discussed patents in a way that wasn't... Um, tinged a little bit sometimes with some kind of either a little bit of confusion or sometimes even kind of outright paranoia, particularly like about the Compass patent. There were a lot of articles I saw that 
wrote about how, you know, what would this mean for people who are just growing mushrooms? What would be the impact on this for kind of the psychedelics field at large? And really kind of breathing so much uh, importance into this particular patent that, you know, could be dispelled a little bit um, by having some kind of more rigorous analysis. Like actually last winter I was at a, um, actually was volunteering for maps just at an information table, like handing out um, kind of uh, information. And a lot of people kind of started conversations with me. And when I told people that I was a patent lawyer, it was right around the time that the Compass patent was, uh, was just before it was granted, but there was a lot of news articles around it. And a lot of people were asking me like, like, how is this possible? Like, are they going to monopolize all of psilocybin? And I just saw that there was so much kind of misinformation out there in the patent space about the impact psychedelics could have. But then on the other hand, like there are dozens and dozens of applications filed that all of these companies who are in the space are um, you know, issuing press releases about, promoting their businesses about. And um, there was confusion there in some sense about like, how are these companies setting themselves apart from others? Like who is actually doing what in the space? Like what drug development is being done? Who's has the uh, newest and greatest of any particular type of technology? So I guess the goal to kind of pull this together was just to provide some clarity about like what are patents in the psychedelic space? Like who's filed them? Like which ones have been granted? Like what do they cover? How will they impact? The commercial space at large, other competitors in the space. Um, so, providing some analysis about that, and then also providing these trackers, where I'll basically list in a table form all the patents that have been filed for a particular compound. So, the first one that I've done that's up on psilocybin alpha's website now relates to psilocybin specifically. So, any patents that discuss psilocybin or um, would be used by a company who's um, working with psilocybin. So would you say that your focus is solely on psilocybin in the psychedelic space um, or other so no. plant medicines? So, yeah. So I started with psilocybin um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one reason was just because they're actually, despite there being maybe about four dozen or so patents on psilocybin, it's more limited than some of the other compounds. So there are even more on LSD and MDMA and ketamine. Um, so it was a kind of an easy place to start. Um, also, it was, I felt important because of, um, especially the Oregon measure, people were most interested in psilocybin, so it felt more timely. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and so psilocybin alpha, I should say itself, even though the name obviously has psilocybin in it, its focus is the whole psychedelic space in general. Oh, great, um, okay. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, so psilocybin itself, I mean, part of the reason I think why it's getting so much attention now is just because you know, obviously there was all this research that was done in the 60s involving psilocybin and LSD. I mean, thousands of research studies and like tens of thousands of um, doses of both that were given to um, to patients. Um, and then all, that all sort of dried up after 1970 when the Controlled Substances Act made these psychedelics uh, scheduled. Um, and then when the, you know, people called the psychedelic renaissance started in the 90s, um, people turned first, researchers turned first to, to psilocybin, I think, for a few reasons. I mean, one of them, it didn't have the sort of cultural baggage of LSD, which kind of felt like it was um, tied up more in the, you know, in the 60s and the cultural um, kind of concerns about um, what happened in the 60s. Um, it has a little bit shorter course of action, so it's, you know, 
trying to give a, a patient LSD for a psychedelic-assisted therapy session, I mean, it's already four or six hours or longer with psilocybin. It's going to be nearly twice as long with LSD, so it's a little less practical. Um, and then psilocybin has you know, a little bit of a benefit, I think, as being a natural compound. So there's you know, kind of an aura around that that um, makes it to some people feel more acceptable and um, kind of more appropriate. So I have purchased mushrooms and, um, you know, there's, I had no way of knowing if they were poisonous or not. I, I trusted. And other than the obvious, what makes a grocery store mushroom different from a psilocybin mushroom versus a poisonous mushroom? And how can an average person like myself tell the difference? Is there a certain look, color, area where it's grown? Elizabeth, you shouldn't be so trusting. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I guess one of the one of the things I could start with is we can hope that once there is like a legalization framework or decriminalization um, that happens in more states, we'll be able to have a little bit more trust for the mushrooms we get. Although I've I've never heard, at least for purchase psilocybin mushrooms, that there's been a problem. Um, as for like picking them yourself, I mean, so actually one of my most favorite hobbies really is mushroom foraging. Um, because it combines sort of my two favorite things, which are um, being able to kind of like geek out on nerdy details about things and also go hiking. Um, so like if you are interested in um, kind of learning more about mushrooms, I mean, the way I started was uh, I took a, like a, just a guided um, tour with an expert. And there's a lot of those available where you can join like a mushroom foraging club. I think most, most cities seem to have them. I'm not sure what's on the East Coast just in terms of mushrooms. And, you know, one of the things I've been waiting for in the end of summer, fall is for here in California, our rains to start, because that's when the mushrooms um, come back up. But but yeah, so even though I've been foraging for years now, um, there are only a few kind of types of mushrooms that I would feel comfortable eating. Actually, the, when I took my first mushroom, um, the kind of guided trip that I mentioned, one of the things that I thought like, oh, this is the nicest looking mushroom I've found, turned out to be a death cap, which is one of the most poisonous types of mushrooms. Um, they're actually, once you learn about them, fairly easy to kind of spot. Um, but of course, you need to have a little bit of um, background to be able to know those difference. I, I've never actually picked um, psilocybin-containing mushrooms in the wild. Um, in the, it depends where you are. In the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot more. Um, but they are a little bit trickier to spot. So the kind of little brown mushrooms um, can be a little bit harder to tell from each other. And there are some um, some species like gallerinas, which are uh, similar in look, but um, have the same poisons as like the death caps. So obviously to stray away from, but there's some um, great books that, um, like there's this guy, David Aurora, who puts out these really incredible books about mushroom foraging that have some of the just funniest pictures in them of his friends on like mushroom trips. And they tell you all these other um you know, details about mushrooms, like how you can use them for dyes and recipes, and but also have all the details about, uh, you know, what you can what you can look for. But yeah, I mean, so I said, like, one of my favorite things to do is to go foraging. And I think one of the questions you mentioned was like, where they're grown, like how that's relevant. And actually, so what I learned, which seems counterintuitive, is when you go on like a mushroom foraging hike, you don't actually look for the mushrooms themselves necessarily, but you kind of look for the environment where they might be. So here, 
in the kind of Bay Area, you look for where there's like oaks, but that aren't around bay trees or eucalyptus trees because of the way they affect the soil. And you have to be like, you know, it's like on a slope near some water. So it gives you a whole other perspective when you're walking through um, the forest to kind of understand your environment and um, be able to be on the lookout for um, different features that are really interesting. So they literally do... I mean, some of the mushrooms that have the psilocybin are literally just coming out of the forest. No one. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, in their backyard or their school. I mean, but don't go picking them unless you know what they are. Is the bottom line. We don't want yeah. people going out there thinking that they can just pick any mushroom and it's going to make them have things. I mean, yeah. I think that you know, really having those guides and being educated is is really really important to making sure that you're not eating something that could really make you sick. Yeah, there's an old saw, I think, in the mushroom hunting world that says every mushroom is edible, but some only once. So yeah, it is, <laughs> it is good to be careful. And actually, the death cap that I picked when I was on this trip, the guide made me take it so that it would, the hike was like kind of on a beach and throw it as far out into the water as I could, because supposedly sometimes dogs will eat them too and get sick. So, oh. so some, of the, some of the dangerous mushrooms are pretty dangerous. And also going back to you asked about where they're grown, um, it's important to not just know the, how the mushrooms look, but even where you are and what type of mushrooms are there. So, like, I've heard that, like, sometimes people come from Europe where there are mushrooms that they are that, that are edible there, and then they'll come to, say, the United States, and something that looks like an edible amanita in Europe is actually a poisonous one or something that looks, mm. um, you know. So there's, it's really important to be um, familiar with not just the, way the mushroom looks, but it's all kind of context. Wow, that's really informative. Thank you. Thank and you. We wanted to talk a little bit um, as we've kind of navigated our way through and are learning more about the psychedelic space. We've been seeing that and noticing that there seems to be a divide between those that believe that money should not be made off these sacred plants. Yet at the same time, in order for the general population to have access, we see the need of how we might need the help of big pharma and some of these large companies to make it happen. So I just wanted to, you know, ask your experience about if you've come across this divide or feel this divide. And if so, how do you feel we can help bridge that gap? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think that's probably the like biggest question in the space right now. So I feel like that would be a few podcasts itself, <laughs> kind of my thoughts. And like one of the things I like so much about working in the psychedelic space is sort of how dynamic it is in terms of like how many different voices there are and how many stakeholders there are. But it's also one of the things that makes it sometimes hard to work in because there are so many different viewpoints, it's hard to like kind of represent all of them. And I, I certainly don't want to speak for others, um, but I can kind of tell you my perspective. Um, and I mean, sort of my hope and obviously I have a little bit of a bias coming from the, you know, being a patent lawyer and having most of the work that I do be for um, the more kind of commercial interests in the space. But I believe that the, um, like we're all working towards the same goal, basically. I mean, that's kind of how I feel. And despite the fact that there's some obvious conflicts. So like with the Oregon Measure 109, for instance, psychiatrists came out against it because they felt like psilocybin should only be given if it's prescribed by medical doctors in a particular clinical context. And then on the sort of other side of the spectrum, some of the decriminalization, um, the decriminalized nature, other 
people came out against it because it didn't sort of go far enough. So it is hard to like balance all the interests in the space. Um, but I think there's room for everybody and not everybody who wants to take or could benefit from a psychedelic necessarily wants to take it in the same context. So there will be people who I think will want a more clinical experience and to take an FDA approved drug from you know, a psychiatrist or the prescription of a doctor that they have a relationship with. Some may want to go to a therapist um, or you know, possibly take it in a group setting with a facilitator. Um, and you know, some may want to do it in a, a more ceremonial, sacramental context. And you know, some may not want that like additional um, sort of context. Maybe they'll want to take it in a community setting, but maybe not with the, the ceremonial aspect added to it. So I think people will have different perspectives. And some people may just want to take mushrooms and go and eat them, um, you know, with some friends on a camping trip. So I think the kind of bottom line is the thing that I would be concerned for is when different uh, kind of players kind of overstep their lanes, maybe. But I think there is enough space that there are enough lanes for all of these different kind of um, ways to sort of travel in parallel. Um, and I mean, I, I do think that the pharma and the kind of big company um, perspective is a benefit. So I do think that like the, I mean, especially so we can look at like maps, for instance, maps, I don't know that I would necessarily call them like pharma or, or a bigger company, but they've spent so much time and really laid the great the groundwork, you know, working since the 80s to remove the stigma and to um, sort of mainstream, in a sense, the, the whole conversation and the acceptance around using what otherwise would be a, uh, you know, a stigmatized or scheduled medicine. So I think that like big companies and big pharma and the like, investment and the attention that they get, even through patents, can help by um, also like removing some of that stigma. And as long as those companies um, like don't try to monopolize the entirety of the space, don't try to make it so that the only way you can get a psychedelic medicine is by going to your doctor. Like, I think there just has to be a whole ecosystem and a whole like diversity that ref like respects and reflects all the different um, kind of views of all the different people in the space. And I think that's one of the most, to me, interesting things about the whole psychedelics field in general is because it is bringing all of these people together and maybe it can, you know, show how all of these different um, kind of views can in fact work together. So um, we were told that psilocybin actually might be federally legal before cannabis because it's backed by science and research. Wondering if you agree with that and secondarily, if you think it's possible that psilocybin might be the first plant medicine that's supported and offered by the VA to our veterans. Yeah, so, you know, psilocybin and cannabis have, you know, obviously both hurdles to doing research because they're both Schedule One drugs. Cannabis, however, has a few additional hurdles. So, you know, one of them is the kind of well-recognized fact that the only cannabis that most researchers can get access to 
is this particular type of cannabis that's grown at like one university, the University of Mississippi, that pretty much everybody regards as not being um, representative of the type of cannabis that people actually smoke, that they would buy at a dispensary. Um, and it doesn't have the same qualities that would you know, make it as good of a medicine as um, the cannabis that anybody else can get access to. And that's been very slow to change. Uh, and it seems like the DEA is, is moving in the direction of accepting other applications for other growers, but that's still um, you know, a really big problem for the whole plant medicine of cannabis to be researched. Uh, another problem is just the, the difficulties of actually doing research on a whole plant medicine in a way that the FDA would ever see as being supportive of um, a new drug. So because the FDA sees generally and just because of the realities of doing research with um, drugs and what you need to show to get FDA approval, most new drugs have a single API. It's called active pharmaceutical ingredient. So like some of the cannabis-derived or cannabis-based drugs that we have on the market, there's just a few. They're all just single compounds. So THC or synthetic THC or like with Epidiolex, just CBD. But we know that a lot of the benefits of cannabis come from the interaction of at the very least THC and CBD. So we know from a lot of reports that THC given on its own causes some side effects in patients that taking a more balanced um, THC and CBD formulation together wouldn't have. Um, and that's not even to speak of the whole entourage effect of taking you know, broader spectrum or whole um, plant-based medicine. But because there are you know, hundreds of different cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids in the whole plant. I'm trying to like set up the evidence um, in a way that the FDA would approve it as, you know, as a new drug is incredibly difficult. And, and you know, that may not happen. Um, but yet, obviously, we have all these, you know, starting from just anecdotal reports, but all sorts of evidence that really supports the benefits of cannabis. So it's, you know, it's a shame that that's what the reality is. With psilocybin, um, it's easier because it's a single compound. So that's, that is overlooking the fact that there has been now demonstrated that there may be some entourage effects with the other um, tryptamine compounds, so psilocybin-related compounds in um, the equivalent of a whole plant medicine and a whole mushroom medicine, I suppose you could say. So there are a handful, and I think we're just scratching the surface now. I mean, we don't, we have a lot more research on the like minor cannabinoids and what their roles are than we have the like minor tryptamines in um, in a mushroom, but I think we can probably expect that there are some benefits there. But because psilocybin itself kind of stands alone as like a singular compound, the process for getting that FDA approved is going to be much faster. And it's you know now having been um, granted the breakthrough therapy status, I mean it looks like it's on track for approval 2025 maybe. So yeah, so I think we'll see MDMA first, um, probably in the next year or two, and then and then psilocybin after both. Um, being approved by the FDA. So I mean, hopefully we'll see descheduling of, of those and cannabis too after that. But I, I mean, I do, I do think you're probably right in that psilocybin will be approved before like a, another cannabis-based medicine.
But wouldn't it be great to help those veterans? Because we talk to all these different vet groups and we know how difficult it is for them not being able to, you know, they have to use their own money. They can't go to the VA to get these medicines. And we just think about, you know, maybe that it could be that silver lining we're talking about between bridging that gap with, you know, those that are are not thinking necessarily that these plans should be make money off it. But if we could get it to be legalized in such a way where it could go through the VA, that would just be so fantastic to be able to offer something maybe even sooner before cannabis can be legal where we can just start helping people with their PTSD and their anxiety and their depression in a natural way. And so I'm going to hold out for that and I'm going to be hopeful. And I just, you know, this is all just such fascinating information and stuff that I know Elizabeth and I have just been really, you know, yearning to find different people in this space that can help us navigate and understand this. So it's, you've really done a great job, Graham. Thank you so much for your time of helping us kind of work through this space and learn more about it. And I want to make sure that our listeners have some information on how they can get in touch with you, learn more about your business. And if you have anything else you'd like to share, any resources that you like concerning psychedelic news, you know, uh, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of resources, obviously I've mentioned psilocybin alpha, so I would probably repeat that. Um, but no, but there are so many good resources and there's like so much information now. I mean, it is actually pretty overwhelming, um, but there are really great places to look. And one of my favorites for research, uh, psychedelic science review and maps posts, um, a lot of the current research um, for like social and cultural issues and kind of those impacts. I really like Symposia and Double Blind. Um, and they both have, you know, I would sign up for their newsletters. Um, and Double Blind has a great course on growing your own mushrooms, which uh, I think is, you know, something important. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and Shikuna, I think also is, a, you know, it's great for more culture and policy, especially around like traditional knowledge and ceremonial use. And like, it's hard for me to talk about everything today because there is so much information out there but you know i hope people can can go and kind of follow those resources on their own i can add a link to to the our blog post with some of these resources so if you think some others that you really like we'll make sure that we get this shared with all of our listeners yeah absolutely and then in terms of me so i post on twitter as calyx law i also calyxlaw.com my, my email's there this is like one of my favorite things to talk about so I'm always happy to like get in conversations. Always feel free to reach out by, um, by email. Um, so, so yeah, so no, I, I really, really appreciate the, the chance to come and, and get on your podcast. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 if I had like sort of one thing to leave you with, I mean, one of the things that I think has been most important about psychedelics for me is the thing that I've kind of brought back to my regular life about my use of psychedelics, which is that the things that are really important about psychedelics, so like setting an intention, like being really aware of your set and setting, um, kind of integrating afterwards, like those things are just as important, if not almost more so, just in life in general. So, you know, one of the things that I like to do almost like every day is to start by setting an intention, be very aware of my set and setting. Um, and then, you know, when I'm kind of getting ready to go to bed at night to kind of think back through um, kind of how the day went and, and kind of process that. And so, yeah, so I think psychedelics are great when um, we have the opportunity to do them, but there's so much to learn from them that we can take to our kind of regular life to be mindful of um, just things in general. 
That's some really great advice. And so let's all try to be a little more mindful and to really set those intentions in our life. I think that's really fantastic advice. Thank you again so much for your time today, Graham. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Vine, a plant media project podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing now wherever you get your podcasts. For cannabis and psychedelic news and updates, visit our website at plantmediaproject.com. 